May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. And so our summer journey through the stories of the matriarchs and patriarchs continues. Last Sunday, if you were here, you'll know that we had the story of the betrothal of Isaac and Rebecca, a romance story, almost a fairy tale in its textures. And tonight, we begin to see some of the deeper complexities that emerge in this family on the heels of its fairy tale beginnings. It is not so happily ever after, as the betrothal story might have suggested. The first complexity that emerges is the inability of Isaac and Rebecca to have children. Now, this is a deep problem in their world. For without children, without heirs, one's life was seen as only partial It's doubly problematic, though, for this particular family because Isaac and Rebekah are themselves heirs to the promise made to Isaac's father Abraham and mother Sarah that they would be parents of a great nation, and yet they have no children themselves. It will take fully 20 years of married life before Rebekah becomes pregnant for her 20 years of dashed hopes and a seemingly empty promise. And so the storyteller explains, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered his prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant. But did Isaac pray through those 20 long years? Or was it only as a kind of a last resort, having had to face the truth that on his own, he and Rebekah were not going to be able to have children? Isaac prayed, and God answered his prayer, but it's Rebekah who will actually receive a direct word or message from her Lord. The babies jostled each other within her, the storyteller notes. Babies, plural, twins. And she said, why is this happening to me? This is one of those moments when the differences between their ancient world context and our contemporary context kind of fade away, and for a minute there's something very, very familiar. How many times have expectant mothers spoken of the baby in their belly turning somersaults or apparently practicing boxing? For some women, that can be received as a joyous sign of this life that's growing in their tummies. For others, it's just exhausting and painful. With twins, all the more. Why is this happening to me, cries Rebecca, obviously leaning toward the exhausted end of that spectrum. And so she went to inquire of the Lord. Isaac had prayed, and his prayer is answered. Rebecca prays, and she hears a very clear word, not unlike the way Abraham before her had conversed with God. In this second-generation family, Rebecca again seems the stronger and more significant character. The Lord said to her, 
Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. What you're feeling in your belly, Rebecca, is a foretaste of the story that is to come. Two babies, yes, but also two nations, two peoples. This is what's signified by the wrestling movements that have caused you all that discomfort and even pain. And one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The older serve the younger. It's not the way of their world, not at all. It's the firstborn who has rights and privileges. The firstborn is the one to be served, never the other way around. Well, Rebecca hears this strange message and perseveres through her difficult pregnancy, and twin boys are born. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they called him Esau, which probably means something like rough one. It's an apt name, as the story will soon reveal. Esau is a rough one. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. The elusive Hebrew word here, Yaakov, means something like heel holder or even heel sneak, but also supplanter, the one who challenges. For this is the one who will soon displace his older brother. The birth is a gift and a marvel, observes Walter Brueggemann, but it comes in conflict. From the beginning, Jacob is destined to be a man of combat. The paradoxical marks of gift and conflict dominate the Jacob narrative. Jacob is born to a kind of restlessness so that he must always insist, grasp, and exploit. His life is a trouble not only for himself, but for those around him. His life is trouble not only for himself, but for those all around him. Well, Jacob's life is trouble, firstly, for his parents. For the storyteller notes that when he grew up, Esau became a skilled hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. What's more, Isaac, their father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, I hardly need to tell you that such clear division in a family, such clear differences between a mother and a father in the way in which they see their children, that signals a problem, a complex problem. We've been put on the alert. And so once when Jacob was cooking some stew, 
Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. You can see it all, can't you? This kind of rugged, big character who's been out hunting, maybe not successfully, but even if he's got game with him, comes back in and he is just so hungry. He can hardly even stand it. And smelling the red bean stew that his brother was cooking, and already isn't that a bit of a picture, the big hunter and the other man staying back cooking. Not a usual role for a man, not in their culture. His brother is cooking, and it's all Esau can do to keep from just grabbing the pot. Give me some of that. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. In in other words, name me as firstborn, not you. Sell me your birthright. You can have the stew, but let me have your status as the older brother, the firstborn of the twins. Now, a few verses earlier, that storyteller had characterized Jacob as being a quiet man. Once again, the Hebrew is a little bit elusive. Some translations render it a plain man or even a simple man. But we shouldn't think for a minute that Jacob was somehow gentle or without guile. As the stories play out, we'll see that his kind of quiet is entirely more strategic, tactical, even conniving. He can look his famished brother straight in the eyes and bargain for something of the highest value, knowing that Esau is likely to make the deal. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? Jacob said, so swear to me first. So Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate and drank and got up and left. It's a done deal. The big man doesn't even really know what he's done, but Jacob knows. The text ends by saying that Esau despised or belittled or spurned his own birthright, his status as the eldest brother. And it's abundantly clear that Jacob is more than ready to take it and hold it by any means necessary. In the view of the Jewish scholar Robert Alter, the dialogue between these two brothers suggests that Jacob is a man of legalistic calculation. Perhaps this is a quality needed to get and hold on to the birthright, but it hardly makes Jacob sympathetic. And moral ambiguities will pursue him in the story. Well, that's at least an understatement from Robert Alter. For Jacob will again and again and again show himself to be the consummate shyster. He wheels and he deals and he cons his way into the positions of privilege, the positions he needs to be in, into riches in the full story. 
He will eventually be stopped in his wheeling and dealing. He'll be stopped in his tracks. He'll be taken down hard, in fact. But that story comes a few more Sundays down the road. In the meantime, what we have before us is the most unusual of pictures of a man whose chosenness by God, and Jacob is clearly chosen, his chosenness by God is expressed, lived, even fulfilled through all kinds of subterfuge and scams. Jacob will do it again and again as the stories progress. His destiny as the next in line in the patriarchs is won by wheeling and dealing. It's not as if it's without consequences either. He gets his own way, but it costs him dearly. It costs him his relationship with his brother Esau. It will cost him his relationship with his father Isaac. It will cost him in his relationship with his uncle Laban. It will even leave him wounded, limping, when he finally has to face down this very God who has called and chosen him. And yet... It would appear that this God is less concerned about the kind of upright moral religiosity so often claimed as essential by those who number themselves as God's people. It would appear, in other words, that God is quite prepared to work with some rather unsavory raw material. God has got a bit of a soft spot for the shyster, the wheeler-dealer Jacob. The first shall be last, Jesus will later proclaim. And when we hear that, we tend to think in terms of the last being, you know, the, the weak and the marginalized and the poor and the pushed out. But here in these narratives, the last is Jacob, the second-born son the quiet man who stays back in the tents and doesn't have all the bravado of his hunter brother, who doesn't have the love of his father, the second-born one who cons his way to what he wants and is claimed by God as one of the first, the first parents of this family of faith. When you stop and think about it, if God can work with material so raw as Jacob, the heel holder, the heel sneak, the supplanter, the con artist, the shyster, surely God can work with the likes of us. And that's the good news from the stories of our forebears in faith for this Sunday evening in July. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.